Now this morning we will pick it back up in Matthew chapter 13, in what we're calling the parable chapter. And we'll explore the very first parable given by Jesus in this section, a parable that I'm calling the parable of the sower and the soils. But there, this gives us an opportunity to ask really a long-standing question, one that has existed throughout all of church history, and that is this question, why do some people believe while others reject? Or is it simply that we have uh, the wrong use of means, as Charles Finney has said, that we must have the right words in the right way at the right time in the right place? It's all about the situation. Will that bring about saving faith? Will it bring about life change? The Lord Jesus Christ speaks to that very question in Matthew 13. And so if you haven't already turned there, you can turn there with me. And last week we we really took an introductory look at parables in general and really studying the the whole purpose, the function of parables. I'm not going to rehearse all of that here today. But just by a quick reminder, a parable itself is a story or an illustration from everyday life that is used to convey a deeper truth. And Jesus used parables all the time in his own teaching. We saw how parables really are used for two reasons. There are two main reasons why Jesus taught in parables. The first was to conceal conceal truth from the hard-hearted, to withhold divine truth from them. But the second reason was to reveal truth to his followers, to illustrate and to draw out even more truth for those who are following him as disciples. And parables had a a subtle yet polarizing effect to the listening crowds. And so the beginning of Matthew 13 introduces us to the very first of several parables in this gospel, Matthew chapter 13. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, and he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold... The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, this parable is known by many titles. Jesus himself, in verse 18, calls this the parable of the sower. Uh, But many modern commentaries or scholars have seized on the spiritual lesson and called this the parable of the soils. Well, I've split the difference and called this the parable of the sower and the soils, just so I don't get in trouble with anybody. So Jesus, he gets into the boat here. He's about to go and teach, and he's going to teach to all these crowds. And we don't know how many people were there, but there was quite a number of people. And as he goes out and rows out just a little bit to create some distance so he can preach effectively, he begins his teaching with this parable. Now, the parable itself is very simple, So simple, in fact, that nobody would have thought much of it, because at this time, this is an agrarian society, planting and farming was a common practice, and everybody would have been familiar with the occurrence. 
And so the second half of verse 3 really presents us with this notion of a, a farmer or a gardener, or as Jesus calls him, a sower, who goes out into his field and begins to sow seed. Again, very simple, incredibly simple. And in the story of this sower, there are four situations that are described, four scenes, if you will. And we see the first one in verse 4. Verse 4 says that the sower, he goes out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up. Not anything life-changing here. Now, anybody who's gardened or gardened before knows that in your garden, you're always going to have footpaths. There's always going to be a, a footpath in between the rows where you can walk and do what you have to do. You don't want to be stepping on the good soil and ruining that, so you walk along the, the paths. And these patches of ground, they're not good for planting, they're only good for walking. And so as the sower is walking down these footpaths and he's scattering his seed, some of that seed is falling out of his hand and landing on the footpath. And in Luke's telling of the parable, Jesus adds that not only does this seed produce nothing, but it also gets trampled underfoot. So as the sower is walking, he's stepping on these seeds and crushing them. And furthermore, we see that the birds, they swoop in and they eat the seeds, and again, nothing is produced. Second situation comes in verses 5 and 6. He says, Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, but immediately they sprang up because they had no depths of soil. When the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root and withered away. So again, these verses don't talk about soil that's necessarily uh, rocky itself. What the understanding is here is that this is a a, a very thin soil that's sitting on the top of a very uh, rocky uh, bed. Israel is full of uh, places of of rocky ground that is covered with topsoil, but underneath it's it's all uh, difficult terrain. And so the soil itself has no depth and gardening is very difficult. And so when you have shallow soil like this, the seed might germinate, And it quickly grows up, but there's no roots at all. And so because of the shallowness of the soil, they don't ever have any root and nothing ever gets produced. Jesus says in verse 6 that the sun then scorches this kind of growth and it eventually just withers away because there's no depth to the soil or to the root. The next situation comes in verse 7. He says, others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out. Now, this is a soil that is uh, capable of fostering growth, so there's uh, nutrients in the soil, but unfortunately, this soil gets overrun by weeds and thorns. And when good seed is sown, again, it it survives a little bit to germinate and to grow, but then soon, it is choked out by the competing weeds and thorns. And Mark 4, 7 adds that when this happens, uh, no crop is yielded, no fruitfulness at all. And then the final situation here in verse 8 He says, others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now this last scenario is that of seed that lands on good soil and produces a crop. Again, this crop is varied. It depends on what the crop is, and some of it is sprouting up and it produces thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some a hundredfold. But no matter what happens in the situation, all situations in this soil, they all produce some level of fruitfulness. But at the end of the parable, Jesus utters this pronouncement. In verse 9, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the crowd would have scratched their head and said, Well, that's great. What does it mean? 
And the disciples themselves would have gone back to Jesus at a different time, probably later in the day, maybe when he was taking a small break in between the parables, because we know that there are more parables to come. But they came to him, uh, and they, they asked him directly, that why do, why do you not explain these things to the crowds? And furthermore, why do you only speak to them in parables? We talked about that last week. You know, what, don't you want people to know what you're talking about? Why just tell stories? And he gives the answer, starting in verse 11. Jesus answered them, To you, the disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the crowds, it has not been granted. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, will keep on seeing, but not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because you see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And so again, this goes back to the twofold purpose of the parables, both to conceal and to reveal. Now there are many in the crowd, probably the vast majority, that came because they either got a free meal or a good message or there was something to do on a Saturday or whatever it was going to be. They had no love for God. They had no love for the truth, no desire for salvation at all. They were just there because they wanted to see something special. But because of their hardness of heart, the Bible says that God did not grant them to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And inside that crowd were also the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had a sinister motive, not just to be curious about a meal or a message, but they had a sinister reason because they wanted to destroy Jesus and his entire ministry. And so they were listening not to learn something, but they were listening because they wanted to find something to hang him on. But what about those who are coming into the kingdom? That's why Jesus tells the crowd just en masse, he he says this to anybody, if you have ears to hear, then hear. And anybody who had been in the crowd who did have ears to hear, eyes to see, they would have heard and saw and understood. And they would eventually have come out of the crowd and begin to follow Jesus. And so really the parables have sort of a sifting effect. To anybody who doesn't care, it's just a story. But to those who are interested who God is working on their heart. The parable is what draws them out. And they do have ears to hear and eyes to see. But Jesus did not withhold the meaning from his disciples. He always told them what these things mean. Now, he doesn't explain every single parable in the Scriptures. And there are some parables that we're going to work through that have to be interpreted. But some of these parables he does explain in the context of the Scriptures. And he does explain this one in verses 18 to 23. So we're going to move into that portion at this point here. In verse 18, Jesus then tells the disciples, then hear the parable of the sower. I'm going to explain this one to you, he says. You want to know about the parable of the sower? I will tell you. Now before he even gets into the four soils, the scriptures themselves help us with a little bit of the imagery. In Luke 8:11, Jesus says that the seed itself, the seed, is the word of God. 
So there's an imagery here. The seed that's being scattered is the Word of God. It's the Scriptures. But in the context of the parable here, it's the biblical gospel of salvation. It's the message that is to be believed. That's what we're talking about here. The, sal- the salvific and the saving Word of God. Then Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 4.14 adds that the sower is the one who sows the Word. So again, they're scattering the seed, but they're scattering the Word of God, so they're proclaiming the Word of God to people. And you might ask the question then, well, who exactly is the sower? Now certainly we understand that anybody who proclaims the Word of Christ would be sowing seed, but Jesus, even though He doesn't tell us here, later in a different parable in verse 37, the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus identifies the sower as the Son of Man. He says, I'm the sower. And any ministry that goes out to people to be saved, that's ultimately my ministry. Every preacher, every proclaimer, every evangelist, every person who gives testimony, ultimately they're giving forth the word of Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it's as though I'm entreating you myself. It's as if though Christ were entreating through me. So when I reason with you and I plead with you to believe on Jesus Christ, it's as if he's saying, believe in me. We're just a vessel. We're just a vehicle. So anyway, the the sower is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. And so again, he's the sower. The seed is the Word of God. And all who sow the Word of God, those are the ones who are dispensing this teaching, these, uh, these verses. And so again, we have some basic concepts which we can understand the parable a little better. But look at verse 19. Here's where he begins the explanation. Verse 19 When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Now, immediately we realize that these are four soils, and the four soils represent four different kinds of hearers, but more specifically, the soil itself is their heart. Jesus says in verse 19 that it's being sown into the heart. So the four soils are four kinds of hearts, souls, if you will. And Jesus describes this event of the word of the kingdom being preached to them. And the text says that they actually hear it. They hear the word being preached. So it's not a matter of delivery. It's not a matter of quality of communication. It doesn't really make a difference what's being said, how it's being said, or by who is saying it. That's not the whole point. The point is these people actually hear what's being proclaimed to them. They hear the message. However, as Jesus describes earlier in verse 13, yet they do not understand because their heart has become dull. Their heart is totally closed off. Verse 19, they hear, but they do not understand. They don't understand. Why don't they understand? Why don't they get it? Is it because of the wrong use of means, as Charles Finney would have said? Well, Jesus, in the parable, he likens the devil to birds who eat up all the seed. Jesus says the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Well, how is this possible? How is this possible? It's almost as if though Satan were able to to come in and thwart the purposes of God. Is that true? Is, Is Satan really able to stop people from hearing and believing the gospel? The short answer is no. No. God is sovereign over all, including the evil works of Satan. 
But this is really an illustrative nature of the parable here. The idea, and I want you to put yourself in the audience of this time period, the idea of Satan stealing the word of God from a person's heart is supposed to be shocking. What do you mean he comes and steals the word of God from my heart? What is that? It's supposed to be jarring. That's part of the, the imagery of parables. But the issue ultimately is not Satan. It's not about Satan. This has to do with a person's heart who has not been prepared. Their heart isn't ready to receive. And again, if the soil, the heart, were good soil, the seed would have germinated instantly and produced the fruit of faith and godliness. But because the heart has been hardened and compacted and trampled over, Satan is easily able to swoop in and create a stumbling block and remove the seed. It's like it was never even preached to them. What determines the condition of a heart? Well, ultimately, God does. God does. Remember, earlier, God does not grant the privilege of understanding these things to crowds, to the general populace. Remember, all hearts are dead in sin because of the fall. All hearts. But God, in His providence, in His kindness, in His mercy chooses to grant eternal life to some, effectively choosing or calling or electing them. Now, is God's choice arbitrary? No, it's based on his sovereign will. And yet nobody understands that will. I don't know who's going to be saved when I preach. I have no idea. As Charles Spurgeon says, if you were to point out to me, if someone could just lift up their shirt and show me that they have a sign on their chest that says that they're going to be receiving the word of God, if there was a big old E for elect, I'd preach only to them. Because I don't have that luxury, I preach to all people. And that's a good way to do it. I preach as though every single person is going to hear and believe the gospel and be saved. What other choice do you have? So that's what you do. You preach to all creation. All creation. I tell every single person, you should tell every single person to repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And those who have ears to hear, they'll hear the message, they'll understand, and they will believe. And they will be saved. But who is that up to? It's not to me. I have no idea who is going to be saved. And I don't understand his will. So again, preach the gospel to all people that all might be saved. But for those who reject, and they will be people who reject, for those who reject, it's not because we don't do a good enough job in evangelism. Now, hear me rightly now. If you don't understand what the gospel is, and you just say God has a wonderful plan for your life, and if you follow him, everything will be great. Well, that's not the gospel. That's going to lead them into a false faith. But if you're faithful to share Christ, even if you mumble and stutter and don't always get everything right, and God, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, my friends. He can do it. I've heard horrendous gospel presentations that ever resulted in saving faith. God uses all of us in all of our weakness, in our timidity, in our lack of fruitfulness, in our mistakes. He uses all of us broken vessels to accomplish his divine purposes, which is a marvelous mystery. But some people's hearts are just so hardened that nothing can be humanly done to change that. They just will not hear. And I'm sure you've preached the gospel or shared the gospel with people before, and you do it as best you can, and you plead with them when they say, I don't care. I remember one time I was talking to an older man, and we had been friends for a while, and I remember saying to him, hey, I have a quick question for you. I said, Do you ever think about the future? Ever think about heaven and eternal life and what happens after you die? And he's sitting there and he looks at me and he goes, no. 
I says, I mean, are you interested in that at all? I mean, could I talk to you? I mean, I, you can if you want. I just doesn't really, I'm not really thinking about that. I don't care. And he really didn't care. And I, I shared with him several other things and totally gone. It, it was as if the, Satan had swooped in and just took in everything I had preached him away and it's just, just gone. No interest whatsoever. A hardened heart. However, we wrote from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that God makes it evident to all creation who he is. But because of the hardness of people's hearts, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God makes it very clear to all people that he's there. And he, through his providential means, has made the gospel available to millions upon millions upon billions of people. And yet Jesus says, it is a narrow gate and few enter in. But the reality of the truth of this parable is that a person's heart is often hardened. Mark this, because I believe they spend years making it hard. They reject him. They they kick and they scream when they fight the Lord. They do whatever they want. They do what's right in their own eyes so that by the time they hear the gospel, they don't understand because they don't want to understand. When you practice sinfulness and you, and you sear your own conscience, your heart is already depraved, but when you deprave it more and make it worse, then when the truth comes, you have no grid to even understand. Now, can God override that? Of course he can. But when a person just indulges in sinful, debauched behavior and they give themselves over to a depraved mind, they harden their own heart against the Lord. That, my friends, is the plight of the hardened heart. And you plead with people, please, hear and understand. Stop running from God. Stop doing whatever you think is right based on your own judgment. Trust the Lord. Turn to Him. Repent of your sins. And you pray and you trust that they might. That brings us to the second kind of soil, the shallow heart. Now, at this point, I'm starting to borrow an outline here from James Boyce. Forgive me for that, but he's got the best outline I could find, so we're going with that. The shallow heart, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, The one on whom seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now remember, this rocky soil, lots of rocks underneath, consists of a a thin top layer of soil. It's covering very loosely over a rocky bed. And Jesus says that that situation, that kind of a heart, this man hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. I want you to note in your Bible here, the word immediately. It happens twice in this section here. But immediately, this is an emotional response. That's what this is. Now, they might understand the gospel message itself. They might hear the words and it makes sense to them. Oh, Jesus died for my sins. All right. I've got some sins and Jesus died for them and that's great. I'll I'll follow that message. But the reality is they they might hear the message. They might understand the message. But they don't understand the gravity of that message. It never permeates. And I've seen this kind of thing, and I'm sure you have, for a long time and all throughout the course of church history. And I'll tell you, this this began to increase more during the era of evangelistic crusades. Large crowds, emotional music, persuasive message, and then comes the altar call. 
I remember one time I was preaching at a church and I gave my sermon and I preached the gospel at the end and I got down and I stepped down and a man charged up the aisle at me and he looked at me and he says, how is anybody going to believe the gospel? And I, and I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, you didn't ask for an invitation. You didn't have an altar call. And I said, well, I don't think this church does that. He goes, but if you don't have an altar call, no one's going to get saved. And I went, I was a young preacher. I said, oh no, what have I done? No altar call. Then I went to the Bible and I said, where's the altar call? And I can't find it. But that's what happens. We create these environments and then the, the preacher, everything gets emotional and built up. He says, all right, if you want to receive Jesus, then come and do it right now. And people stand up and they flood to the front and, oh, I received Jesus. And, and they do it with great joy. They pray a prayer and the preacher pronounces them saved. And he sends them off. What's the problem? Verse 21 Yet he has no firm root in himself and is only temporary. And then what happens? When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Gospel hasn't taken root. And that means that saving faith does not exist. Their enthusiasm for Christianity is temporary. What brings about this change? It's interesting, Luke 8, 13, which is a parallel passage here, notes that Jesus says they believe for a little while and then in time of temptation fall away. So what happens is they get home from the crusade or from church or from whatever their evangelistic meeting is and they jump right back into their old life. They, they go to bed that night, they wake up the next morning and they forget that they even went to that event. And they go right back to their old way of doing things. Or as Matthew records, Jesus says, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. The first time they experience any opposition to their faith, they renounce it. Immediately received, immediately rescinded. Just like that. And modern Christianity is addicted to winning converts this way. Why? Well, because number one, it's exciting. Number two, it's instant. Number three, it's measurable. Well, how many got saved last night? 25, all right. How do you know? How do you know? I heard a, a pastor one time say, when people ask me how many have been led to Christ in my ministry, I never give a number in the moment. He measures it according to how many have come to faith in the last five years. He says, I look back five years, and then I measure and say, I, we might have had maybe five or six or eight or ten come to faith in Christ, but I'll let you know. Whenever our denomination asks me for how many new converts every year, you know what I write? Zero. Because I don't know. Now, again, I see, have seen people in this congregation, many of you, hear the gospel, believe on Christ, growing in your faith. I praise the Lord for that. But in the end, only God knows if you are regenerate inside. I pray that we can do a good job helping to determine that and minister to you. But in the end, we can't produce converts. That's not the focus of the ministry. The focus of the ministry is to be faithful to God and let Him sort everything out. But something that is exciting and instant and measurable, it's oftentimes fake. Mark Dever, in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, writes this. This is a powerful quote. One of the most painful tasks pastors face is trying to undo the damage of false converts who have been too quickly and thoughtlessly assured by the evangelists that they are indeed Christians. Such a parent 
charitable activity may lead some to short bursts of excitement involvement and interest. But if an apparent conversion does not result in a changed life, then one begins to wonder at the unwitting cruelty of convincing such people that because they prayed a prayer, they have fully investigated all the hope that God is for them in this life. The unwitting cruelty of false assurance. That if I preach the gospel and you get excited, I say, all right, you're a Christian now, and I I deem you to be a believer. And you say, well, pastor so-and-so said I am, so therefore I am. But how do you know? Is there any result of anything changing in your life? Or do you just sprout up and receive it with great joy and then immediately renounce it? William Hendrickson calls this the impulsive heart. Quick to receive, quick to reject. Number three, we see the third situation here. The strangled heart. The strangled heart. Verse 22. In the one on whom seen was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word... And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The seed is sown among thorny soil. And while, again, the good seed will grow for a little while, the thorns will eventually creep up next to it and choke it out and kill the crop. Happens all the time. If you have a garden and weeds begin to grow, you'll eventually lose your crop. And the weeds will come up just fine, won't they? This person who has heard the gospel and even given assent to it for a while and maybe lived as a recognizable Christian for a season of time, that's what this is talking about here. But I'll tell you, frankly, this scares me the most. Out of all of the three that are negative here, this one terrifies me the most. I'm really afraid for this one because this is the situation of people who will come to church all the time. Whenever the doors are open, they're here. They'll worship in the gathered assembly They'll serve, they'll give, they'll even evangelize. But at a certain point, when something happens, they'll fall away. And then everything in them dies. And you never see them again. And this happens time after time after time. I've, I've been member, a member of churches before where there have been people in leadership, deacons and elders, who run well for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And you go back and you say, hey, where's deacon so-and-so? And And he fell away. Unrecognizable as a Christian. He's an atheist now. How does that happen? But don't you see it all the time? I do. It's awful. And what happens? Jesus' diagnosis here. He says they're doing well. they're, They're growing. And then he says at some point they become consumed with the worry of the world. Now, of course, God permits us to handle the business of everyday life. God does not, he's not indifferent to the things we have to do as believers. But here's the thing, not ever to the point where the cares of this world take over and choke out your faith. God never permits that. This is why Jesus exhorts the disciples in Matthew six twenty-five to 34. He tells them, don't be worried about your life. Don't be anxious for your life. Be anxious for nothing. What you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on. You could even go further with that by implication. The house you're going to live in, the car you're going to drive, the job you're going to work, what's happening around you. Don't worry about your life. Does not the Heavenly Father know that you need such things? Don't we know that God is uniquely and 
perfectly acquainted with our situation and our circumstances. Doesn't God know what we need? He says, so don't be anxious. Don't worry about these things. He says, instead, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And guess what's going to happen? All these things will be added to you. Sometimes it's worry over simply life itself. Other times it's literally the worry of the world. Let me ask the question. This might be poking some in the eye here this morning, but frankly, I think the parable calls for it. How many otherwise faithful Christians over the last few years have shipwrecked their faith over issues of fear and worry, over things like politics, or the election, or social justice, or COVID, or masks, or vaccines, or Ukraine, or some other eternally inconsequential thing, to the point where they have wrecked themselves forever. They're they're gone. They've left. How many people have done this? Now, again, are these things important in their own right? Of course they are. These things aren't totally inconsequential in the temporal. But none of these things are to cost us our faith. If you stop going to church because of something inconsequential, if you, if you forsake the assembly, if you stop reading your Bible, if you stop praying, if you stop engaging with other believers, if your heart becomes hardened toward God because of something in this world, then it's a sign that your faith is never real at all. There's, there's a second faith killer that he highlights here, and he notes it is the deceitfulness of riches, sacrificing your faith for the sake of money or success. And so many people do it. The scripture is replete with warnings over this. One in mind is 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. I remember working with a businessman. I used to be in business years ago. I worked with a businessman who would log, on average, about 100 hours a week at the, at the office. 100 hours a week. And he did this so he could make enough money for his family to live like royalty. But the problem with this is that he had no time, no energy, no resources for the church or even his family at all. He says, I do this so my family will have a good life. They never saw him. They didn't know who he was. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 19, 23, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Is it because money's bad? No. Is it because people who've been given wealth are evil? No, of course not. God has blessed many believers throughout the course of church history. Look at King Solomon. He had everything he could possibly want and more. So wealth is not bad, but here's the problem. When chasing money chokes out the growth, the spiritual growth that's in your life, that's the problem. When working extra hours or chasing money is the the very thing that hinders you from growing spiritually, that is a demonic distraction. Along with these, Mark adds things like the desire for other things, the pleasures of this life. Those who live like worldly hedonists, they want to just wring out every little last drop of joy that the world's going to give them at the expense of eternity. That is a tremendous danger. This is an issue of idols in the heart that destroy Christian faith. This happened in Paul's ministry to his companion, a man named Demas. He says, who, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.10, 
This also happened to someone else that Jesus was close to. A man named Judas, who ran really well, really well for three years. I mean, Judas had the best seminary education in history. Judas went on evangelistic crusades for Jesus. There are people who are in heaven right now because Judas Iscariot preached the gospel to them. Can you fathom that? And yet Judas himself sold out the Lord for money. The cares and the worries of this life, the desire for riches, desire for other things, the pleasures of this world, when all of that, all that stuff around you in your life, the idols of your heart, when all that grows up in your life and eventually chokes out the faith you have, woe to that person. Beloved, be careful. Now, you might think to yourself, well, obviously anybody who applies to all these three have to be careful. But here's the thing, the seed that falls on the, on the hardened soil, they're not here this morning. And those who falls on rocky soil, they'll be here this week and not next week. No, this is where we come in. Not just you all, pastors and elders too. We have to be so careful because this is where we get trapped. And you might be here and you might have been here for the last 10 years. Guard your heart. Guard your life. Don't let this be you. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. And if you're not so sure, you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I've been going to church my whole life. I've been doing good stuff for the Lord. But you know, I got some doubts here. Come talk to me after church. Talk to one of the elders. Get on your hands and your knees and pray, Lord, if my faith isn't sure, redeem me. Don't let yourself be choked out by the desires and the pleasures of this life. I weep and I mourn for those who have served the church of Christ for years and then they go away. Oh, woe to that person. And beloved, it would destroy my heart. We've already lost people even from this assembly who've gone and are living lives that are unrecognizable as Christians and my heart weeps and mourns for them. Guard yourself. Be so careful, beloved. Are there activities in your life, even a job? You say, well, the Lord's given me my job. But I'll tell you, if your boss forces you to work on Sunday, find a new job. Or plead with them. I'm a believer. I will not work on Sunday morning. They'll work with you. And if they don't, then that's not the job for you. Your job or your hobbies, sports, clubs, even addictions. Addictions can keep you from the kingdom. Are there things in your life, beloved, that are slowly choking out your faith? And if that's the case, rip it out. Tear off arms and legs and limbs and pluck out eyes. Didn't Jesus say that? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better to enter heaven maimed than to enter hell with all of your body parts. Isn't it better? I'm speaking parabolically, of course. Don't go home and start doing drastic things to your own body, but don't you see what's happening here? The Lord is imploring you to do whatever it takes to fight for saving faith. Beloved, who has your heart? 
Who does your heart belong to? Does it belong to God? Or does it belong to this world? Hear the parable and heed the warning of the sower. Heed the warning and examine yourself. And then finally, number four, the last one, the open heart. The open heart. Some have called this the fruitful heart. One commentator, William Hendrickson, calls this the good, responsive, well-prepared heart. Verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Now again, the good soil does not mean good heart. Why? Well, because Jesus says that no one is good except God alone. He's not talking about those who, have a, who live a good life or have a good internal heart here. He's talking about good soil. That means a heart that has been tilled and prepared to receive the word of God. Well, what must be done to prepare the heart? Well, on a human level, there is the discipline of self-examination and repentance. That's why John the Baptist talks about when the gospel is proclaimed, he says, prepare the way for the Lord, get yourself right, If you know you're in sin, confess your sins and listen to the the Word of God. If there are things you're doing that are stopping you from being faithful, then stop those things. Those are human things. But in reality, only God can truly prepare the heart to receive the Word. And He does so through the work of regeneration which precedes your faith. He has to work in you. That's the promise of the New Covenant, by the way. Ezekiel 36, where he promises, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk according to my ways. God is in the the business of taking hearts of stone, dead hearts, and he removes them through divine surgery, spiritual surgery, pulls them out of a person, takes a brand new heart, and infuses it with his spirit and puts it back into a person and breathes life into them and revives them. And they wake up and they look on the Creator and they say, I believe in you. You saved me. You redeemed me. That's the doctrine of regeneration. Remember Jesus' words in John 6.65, No one can come to me unless the Father has granted it to him. God must give you this faith. He must revive something in you. He must till the soil and prepare the heart. And He does by His grace. And this seed is sown on the good soil, Jesus says. And this is a man who hears the Word and understands it. And Mark even adds, and accepts it. And so in other cases, we, they don't understand this at all. But here they understand and accept the Word that's been implanted. This last soil, this is unique. Because now the soil has received the word, and they believe, they understand, they they accept it. And it germinates and it begins to bear fruit. The fruit of godliness, the fruit of saving faith. This is really important, because again, how do you know that a person has been saved? Now, we hear testimony all the time. I'll ask a person, do you believe in Jesus Christ? They say, yes. And your, your desire is to say, great. But how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that faith is real? They must bear fruit. They must bear fruit. Spiritual fruit has always been the litmus test of saving faith. Even back to Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Listen to this, verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And the leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. That is the fruit of saving faith, my friends. And this spiritual fruit is required as evidence in the New Testament too. Matthew 3.10, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We must bear good fruit. Matthew 7.17, Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit. It's not that some Christians don't bear any, but at least they're Christians. No, he says, every good tree bears good fruit. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him does what? Bears much fruit. What kind of fruit? What are we talking about? Well, certainly, the first one's always repentance. Repentance always goes along with saving faith. It must. But it's always followed by Galatians 5, and 23, which is called the fruit of the Spirit. The first of these is love, by the way. Believers love God. They love others. They have a love for the lost. They have a love for justice and righteousness. They have love in their hearts. And the question always is asked, all right, well, the Bible says I have to bear fruit, but how much fruit do I have to bear? And the and in our sinful temptation, we say, okay, what's the least amount of fruit I have to bear to be a Christian? Give me, the, give me the, just the bottom dollar. Well, the Bible never says. But notice here, all of the soil in verse 23, all of the soil is good soil and bears different amounts of fruit. Some believers produce a fruitful crop that is akin to a, a 30-fold harvest. That's a lot of fruit, by the way. But that's the lowest amount he even gives as a number. Now, that's, I'm not going to go give you ways to parse that out, but what does it mean? It means that there's a little bit of fruit sown in you in terms of saving faith, and, and your life begins to bear fruit. You manifest the fruit of the Spirit, and, and you do things like love others, and you serve them, and you, you give. And you say, well, I don't have much to give. That's all right. You respond to God in faithfulness with whatever He gives you, and you bear fruit 30-fold. Then He says others produce 60-fold. Now they produce a hundredfold, and we're not all the same, and that's all right. There are those whose ministries will far outpace anything we ever do at this church, and that's good. There are some ministers who will do far more than I ever will. There are believers who will witness to other people more than you will, and give more than you will, and serve more than you will, and that's all right. We don't have to measure against other people. Don't look left, don't look right, don't compare yourself to anybody else. In fact, I read recently that comparison is the thief of joy. So don't do that. Don't compare yourself to other people. God doesn't do that. He doesn't treat us in such a way. He doesn't say, well, do more than this guy. No. He simply says, bear fruit unto God. Your responsibility is to be fruitful with wherever God puts you. He plants you, sprout. And bear fruit. Maintain an honest and good heart. Hold fast to the word of God and bear fruit with perseverance. That's what Luke says. And above all, know that it is Jesus Christ who has given his life for you by his death on the cross and by his resurrection. So, beloved, hear, 
hear the Word of God and understand, believe on Jesus Christ, not just once for salvation, but continue to be steadfast in belief. And by God's grace, you will be saved. And for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, it's a foregone conclusion. So be fruitful wherever you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we marvel and we rejoice that you have not just given us parables to eat, but you've given us even further, you've given us the, the fruitfulness of the interpretation. You've given us spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to understand and to implant and to apply these truths to our lives. And Lord, we know that the gate is narrow that leads to life, and there are a few that find it. But, O oh Lord, I plead with you, I plead with you that that, that narrow gate, that narrow gate is wide enough for everyone within the sound of my voice. Lord, I, I plead with you to preserve the fruitfulness and the steadfastness of every single believer in this church. Father, that is, that's a selfish prayer that I ask of you, Lord, as the, one of the shepherds here at this church, Lord. But Father, I pray that you would glorify your name and bring, as the Bible says, many sons to glory that you would grow the fruitfulness of the witness here and increase the fruitfulness. And while we may proclaim the word of God from this church going forward, from this ministry, that you would be glorified to bless it and that none of it would return to you void, as the scripture says. But Lord, I, I get so scared for your people sometimes, Lord, that there would be none among us who would be like those whose seed was sown in thorny soil, Lord. Or the cares of this world and the desire for other things creeps up in our lives and, and chokes out what's fruitful. Let that never be. Let that never be, O oh Lord. But God, we know that all of this, I can plead with you all day long, but all of this is by your sovereign will, by your grace to extend, by your mercy to extend to those on whom you will extend it. But Father, above all things, above all things, we praise you and we honor you and we extol your name that you do delight to save countless numbers, Lord. You draw many sinners to yourself. You redeem them. You forgive them. You save them. You change them. And you've transferred them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. What a marvelous truth to have salvation in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that even today, there would be those who would hear the gospel of salvation, turn from their old life, turn from their sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and be saved. I ask this in full faith, Lord. And we all pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.